Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. On the last episode of Guilt. Leaving Booms flat now, we're heading back down and can't help but feel that if the cadets did see the tent and everything in the car in this place, they said they did. And that's also the same place Tamahedi said that he saw the box. It's a hell of a coincidence. And the white Subaru came towards me. And the reason I noticed is the bull bar on the front. And I thought, what a good idea, because they're a four-wheel drive wagon, and I thought, well, that'd be good for hunting. And and as they come past, there was a stunning-looking girl in the passenger seat, and there was a white guy driving. But the strange thing was, there was a Maori boy sitting in the middle of the back seat and just looked out of place. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. In the last two episodes, we've heard from two new witnesses who both believe they saw Heidi and Urban alive in their white Subaru station wagon with a Māori man. Both of these sightings are huge new developments in this case and can help provide the previously missing link between Thames and Parakawai. But what happened next? During this investigation, my focus has progressively shifted from Thames on the west coast to Whangamata and Parakawai on the east coast. And almost as if on cue, another new witness came forward who may hold a tantalising clue. But before we hear from him, 
I'd like to share a recent conversation I had with a relative of an important witness in this case. Her name is Kay Manning, and she's the daughter of Four Square owner Graham Manning, who was a key witness in the police's case. It was Graham that reported that he had spoken to Heidi and her barn. He told police that they had made clear their intentions of hiking the Tararu track. Kay told me that her sister, Michelle, was working early shifts at the Four Square during this time in 1989 and recalled seeing David Tamahedi and also a group of three men who she thought at the time were acting like they just killed someone. Hello? Hi, is this Michelle? Speaking. Hey, this is Ryan Wolf. How are you? Good, thank you. So Kay might have mentioned uh, just briefly, she said that, that you guys might have thought that he was just trying to get a bit of, um, I don't know, a bit of attention for... Well, look, there could have been that in two, and not only that, but he was very friendly with the cops that were running the show. And, of course, they had an account running at the shop and everything for their stuff. And when I heard on, on your podcast how they kind of appeared maybe to groom Cassidy a little bit, um, they may have, it may have been partially like that with my father as well. Okay. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not saying it was, yeah. but, you know, it, it's just... It just didn't fit right with me and my sister at the time, you know? Like Michelle said, she can't say that this is definitely the case. But is it possible that Graham may have taken some liberties with his statement about seeing Heidi in her barn? They certainly think it's possible. The fact that he was very friendly with police running the case needs to be noted. Michelle says they had a running account at the store during their time investigating in Thames. I recall when I first read Graham's initial statement, he simply says he believes he spoke to Heidi and her barn in early April. He doesn't specify a date. However, at some point, I noticed a date appears, with no real explanation, and his sighting is given the date of April 6th. But that's not why I'm speaking to Michelle. I'm interested in what she saw in the early hours on a couple mornings in April of 1989. Um, but yeah. yeah, so so were you working in the in the grocery store at the time? Yep, um, I was doing usually, or I always did um, the early morning shift. So I would go down to the shop about five o'clock in the morning, okay. and I would have the doors open soon after that, and. Um, it was, and then I would have about five thirty. Um, another lady who worked with me, she would start. So for for a time, I was there on my own yep. until she arrived. And so it was dark, still dark, and I would put the signboards out on the side of the footpath, you know. Yeah. And on this particular day, I put the signboard out in the dark. I looked up towards the north of the main street, and here was this person walking down the street in the middle of the footpath. And I thought, oh, yeah. Anyway, I went back into the shop, and then he came in the shop. Well, 
when he came in the shop, you see, we always um, people who were regulars and who smoked. We always knew the cigarettes that they were coming in for, you know. Yeah. So we, as soon as we see them walk in the door, we reach for the cigarette that they of their brand, and it would be already sitting for them waiting waiting at the counter. And when this guy he 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 came into the shop, when this guy walked in, I thought, oh yeah, that's so and so Watney. I'll reach for his cigarettes because he now this Watney guy. He would come in sometimes, but not every single day. And sometimes you wouldn't see him for maybe two or three weeks or whatever the case may be. I reached for the cigarettes, and he, the person told me a different brand. I thought, oh, that's funny. You must have changed your cigarette brand. So anyway, I gave him the cigarettes, and he left. Now, that's why I remember him. And I can still see him to this day as clear as a bell coming down the main street. Yeah. That's why I, I remember him because he it wasn't the cigarettes that I was expecting. And the person that he resembled actually would have been slightly smaller than him, but very much the same features, moustache, Mary Guy, um, hair, much similar style. You know, that's why I assumed it was the guy Watney when, in fact, it was Tamahiri. Now, I didn't say anything at the time. I thought, oh, yeah. Uh, and now, this could have happened two days in a row, twice, no more than twice he would have come into the shop at that time in the morning. Yeah. And because, you see, he would have come down the main street possibly looking for cigarettes, but there would have been no other shops open at that time of the morning, Okay. which is why he ended up at our shop. Yeah. But I never, as time progressed, and I don't even th I don't even know if they were reported missing. I can't remember by at that stage, but I never recognised them, putting two and two together until I seen on TV the footage of him being charged at the Thames Court, and that's when I recognised. Oh, that was that guy. Yeah. That's why the, the cigarettes didn't match up. Okay. And, yeah, and I thought, that's that guy. Anyway, so that was that was the end of that little scenario. Yeah. Now, right at the same time, I was leasing some land down at Tararu, right behind the district homes, which is the, now the Bupa care home. Yeah. Now, in behind there was all paddocks, and I was leasing those for my horses, and that, of course, is right at the end of Victoria Street. Mm -hmm. Now, in those days, the road verge, which was a very wide verge down that street, um, wasn't mowed by the council. And there was a bit of poo growing in the long grass. And I was down at the paddock one day. I see this guy appear from nowhere, and he had a sack in his hand. And he was picking the puha. And then he just disappeared. And then, like, I can, and then, so, like, you know, and as time goes by, you think, oh, shit, that's right. I've seen that guy. And that's, that's now I know who that was. And then, um, there was around about the same time, but obviously at that time, I didn't realise it. But my 
the lady that was working with me early in the morning in the shop, we were in the shop. Um, it was still dark outside. A car pull, comes from the northern end and it pulls over to the opposite side of the road and parks parallel to the shop. So he crossed the, he didn't just park and walk across the road to the shop, right? Yeah. He parks facing the other way, right outside the shop, which sometimes people did that at that time of the morning, you know, no yeah. other, nobody else around. The three, three guys got out of it and came into the shop. Now, when they came in, they were really hyped and pumped up and, and they were quite spooky. Um, and one of them I looked at and he had this le- a leather jacket on. And I quite liked the leather jacket, but it just didn't look right on him. Um, it was distressed leather, you know, not like a, a black vinyl or anything like that. It was a distressed leather jacket. And they were so jumpy, but they were getting a bit of food. Um, And then, and and anyway, so we served them and they left. And when they left, I just turned around to my, the lady that was working with me, I said, Jesus Christ, I thought, they look like they've just murdered somebody. (laughs) You know, that was just the feeling that I had and how I, um, okay, so, I mean, now, the car, I couldn't say exactly what kind of car it was. All I know, what I can say, is it was not a dark-coloured car. And I think it might have been a station wagon. However, I, I can't say. It was definitely not a black one. It wasn't a dark green and it wasn't a dark blue. Okay. So it was a, light, a light-coloured car. That's all I can say without Im- imagining. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it stood out because of the energy that they were throwing off. You know, that they were just so hyped up. Like a scary energy almost. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's why I said, Jesus, you know, they, they would have been looking over their shoulder and things like that. And that's what I said to the, my friend. I said, look, they look, just look like they murdered somebody. And that's just how it came out of my mouth at the time. We don't have a date or any identification of this group of men. And well, it could be anyone. But I wanted to include it here. It's just a reminder that there were all kinds of people roaming these areas in the dark of the night. That date, April 6th, that was eventually locked in as the day Michelle's father, Graham Manning, says he spoke to Heidi and Urban. It could be key. We know that they were in Thames on April 7th. Their letter home was postmarked with the date and location. So that's a fact. This is also corroborated by Murray Jenkins' sighting. But where were they on the 6th? Looking at the police map of their known route through the North Island of New Zealand, which is corroborated with sightings and receipts, their path is logical. Taihapi, Taupo, Rotorua, Tauranga, Waihi. But here... It takes a path that I would say isn't logical. According to police, they then drove from Waihi on April 5th, the east coast, across to Thames on the west coast of the Coromandel Peninsula. And as any local or traveller would likely agree, it would make more sense to continue on to Whangamata and then follow the State Highway 25 Copahikawai Highway to Thames, 
This route is more scenic, and it means you won't have to backtrack. I spoke to a resident who recalls seeing Heidi in her barn in the Waihe New World supermarket in early April 1989. I remember it was a sunny summer's day. That's all I really remember. I went into Waihe to go to the supermarket, and, and these two gorgeous people speaking some foreign language was walking around talking, and I was absolutely mesmerised by them. Because at that time, like I said, there wasn't a lot of foreign tourists. Um, and these ones seemed quite exotic because they were quite beautiful. Mm. Yeah, they just really stood out. And I was going to go and say to them, I didn't even know if they spoke English, um, if you need somewhere to stay, you're welcome to come back to our place and camp, camp the night in your tent or your car or we've got a spare bedroom. But I never did. Oh, okay. Yeah. I never did. Um, and then, of course, I don't know how long after that, uh, then then they went missing. And then, um, and the police on the news and all radio and everything was asking for information. But th- th- what they were saying was, um, we don't want to hear from anybody who says they're in Waihi or Wangamata. Lots of people are ringing in saying they've seen them, but they weren't there. So stop ringing. Right. Okay. Yeah. I clearly remember that, and I just thought, oh, well, there's no point me ringing then, is it, to say, yes, I saw them in the supermarket. What was it about them that you remember? So when you saw the television or in the newspapers and stuff, were you 100% sure that that was there? Absolutely. I can still see them clearly now. I even know which aisle they were walking down when I saw them. Wow. How, hmm. how would, you know, what could you, what, what can you kind of remember about them spe- sort of specifically? Oh, she was gorgeous. You know, they were just, they were, they were really, they had this light about them. She, she was just absolutely stunning. Mm. Uh, very tanned, white hair, blue eyes. Yeah. And yeah, he was gorgeous looking as well. That's all I remember. Gorgeous looking and speaking some language that I didn't understand. They were in shorts, t-shirts. I think they might have had a little kind of cool like they didn't have backpacks or anything on they like but they had some sort of shoulder bag or something like that it was a summer's day yeah Mm. um it was warm yeah interesting hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It seems police must have accepted that the couple were in Waihee and an ATM transaction would confirm this. 
but those coming forward saying they saw them in nearby Fongamata were being told, no, you're wrong. They weren't there. Well, we now know with almost absolute certainty that they were, when they were seen driving up Parakawai Quarry Road by Barry Lindsay. Just a reminder that Parakawai and Wentworth Valley are found in the Fongamata area. But the question is when did they first visit Fongamata? Did they travel from Waihi along the coast 25 minutes to this beautiful beach town on April 5th or 6th? During my investigation, I came across a report of a couple matching the description of Heidi and Urban stopping at Purcell Panel Works in Waihi at this time, asking directions to Fongamata. I spoke to Jim Campbell, who formerly worked at this location and eventually had a successful career with the New Zealand police. He recalled seeing who he believes was the couple in April of 1989. Yeah, I, I, I just remember working in the workshop and in my mind I, I looked out down towards Toronga Road and I'm pretty sure Jim was down there speaking to this young couple and in my mind, they had a vehicle. Um, and they had a radiator problem from memory. Okay. And I just tend to remember looking out there and thinking, you know, a young couple, she was an attractive woman, girl. Um, and they looked to be the type that were probably, yeah, just knocking around the country, really. I definitely didn't speak to them. I, I saw them, I noticed them, and then further on down the track, um, when it all came to light as to what had occurred or was suspected to have occurred, then, yeah, I remembered. And, yeah, someone from the police came and spoke to me. Then basically just took a, in my memory, a, just a, a notebook entry for a job sheet, I would say. I, I suppose they just look, both look young, healthy, um, yeah, lean backpacker types. Yeah. Uh, she's blonde hair. I've spoken to a few of the staff that worked at this location at the time, but I've yet to find the person who actually spoke to them that day. It seems that the couple did stop at the shop. Did they ask directions to Fongamata? Maybe. As usual, the fog of time makes accuracy of recollection difficult. But it would certainly make sense that they had. The location of the shop is also on a town exit, in a direction people commonly mistake as being towards Whangamata. I myself have made this mistake a number of times. The police's lack of interest and the passage of time has meant sightings of the couple in Whangamata have, for me at least, been difficult to confirm. But I've been told of them purchasing sausages at the local butchers and visiting the beach. To me, confirming their movements through this area is important, as it presents the opportunity to meet people, perhaps those responsible for their murders. Forget about Tararu Creek and Crosby's Clearing, because whether the police want to accept it or not, I can assure you that Heidi and Urban came to Fongamata alive in April of 1989 and tragically 
they never left. And in the remaining episodes of this podcast, I'm going to prove it. If you could just say your name and... um and so you grew up in this area, you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about that, like how um, about your connection to this place and. Yeah, um, my name is Rodney Topaki. Um, I was raised there for a time, from by my tupuna, my grandparents, until I left home when I was sixteen, and went to Auckland, and then stayed in Auckland for a couple of years. Then I came back, got married. Had a couple of kids, the only reason I got married. And then I went to Aussie, I was about 30, I think it was, about 84, 85. Stayed in West Australia for five years and came back. Stayed here for probably 10 or 12 years. Then went back to Queensland and I've been here ever since. I'm meeting Rodney in a small wooden cabin in Waihee Campground. It seems fitting for this conversation. A stream runs past nearby, and we're surrounded by native New Zealand bush. Rodney reached out early in my investigation, telling me that he believed he saw Heidi and a man in Whangamata, and that he never believed his story had ever been given any serious consideration by police. Rodney has been back and forward between Australia and New Zealand over the last 35 years, but he grew up in Whangamata, and his family has traditional land in this area. Well, we've, we've got five, six acres, and then another rally's got acres, and it's all tied up with our iwi, our tribe, our Ngāti Hako tribe, all that land. And yeah. Um, so take me back to uh, 1989. So you were over here at the time visiting? No, no, I'd shifted back from Perth. It was probably... It was in winter because I know I couldn't get out of bed till midday because it was too bloody cold. And my mother said, you know, she thought I was sick. And I said, no, it's too bloody cold to get up. So I didn't get up to midday. And I think I spent about a, a month there. I bought a tractor, a slasher from a guy, Smith in Nauru. Because all the paddocks were just overgrown. It was just a mess. Like, not just our six acres, but the other rallies, all their paddocks. So I cleaned up all their paddocks. And then... My um, whangai brother, he sort of gave me a hand because he wasn't working, and I wasn't working anyway, because I'd just come back from Oz. Then I took him up to the pub, in Whangamata pub, and shouted him lunch. And this Maori guy come in with this bloody beautiful blonde chula, and I thought, God, oh, lucky bugger. And then they took one look at me and Stephen, we were the only guys in the pub. Then he did a U-bolt and went. And... Looking at her, it looked like she'd been crying. She had puffy eyes. But, you know, you didn't say nothing because he, he just looked at us, turned around and walked out again. And then they took off in that Subaru car. And I didn't think nothing of it. And then when I was slashing the paddocks, one of my blades broke, so I had to go home with the tractor, put a new blade on, go back the next day, and that's when I saw that Subaru car. But uh, there was a batch at the top paddock and a lean-to was parked in there and I thought, oh, my rallies have stepped up because normally they just had holding cars and here's the Subaru parked there. And I didn't think nothing of it, just did my work, went back. And I don't know how long after uh, that, 
that there was flyers going around from Matau and all the shops to have you recognise this guy. And it was Tamahedu, or it looked like Tamahedu with a beard and everything. And I thought, oh shit, that's the guy that I seen come in the pub with this blonde girl. I was going to go to the police. Well, I actually went to the police, but there was no one there. So I told my mother, and she said she'd go and see the police because she knew them pretty well, and I didn't. And then, like I said to her, oh, that Subaru car's up the top. And then she says, oh, no, she doesn't want the police going up around there because that's where our Urupa is. And I think she didn't want anyone going and disturbing the cemetery, you know, because it's a private one, it's a family one. And then nothing happened after that. Didn't hear nothing. And then I moved back to Aussie. Uh, what year would have been? About 99, I think. Yeah, just after my stepfather died. He died in 99. And then moved back to Aussie. Then when I came back one year, my cousins in Pairoa said that Tamahere was appealing or whatever it was. And that I knew that I'd seen him and her. And so they said to me, I'll go to the police and make a statement. So I went to the police in Auckland, made a statement, didn't hear nothing. And my cousins from Pairoa, they managed the hotel in Auckland. And I stayed there when I came, flew back to New Zealand, you know, because I had free accommodation with them having the hotel. Then didn't hear nothing. Mm. You know, so I guess obviously there's been a big passage of time between now and, and back then. Mm. And, and I guess the key here comes down to, you know, that identification. And so at that time, how long was it afterwards when you saw the flyers from when you, when you saw David at the... Oh, hotel. I can't really say. Um, like roughly? It was probably maybe the end of 89, because in 1990 I went back to Perth with the Fongmata Golden Ollies rugby team. I went back there for about three weeks, flew back. So it's either the end of 89 or early in 1990. Yeah. I wouldn't be sure. Okay. So within a 12-month period, though, because yeah. I'm just trying to imagine how fresh in your mind, yeah. you know, when you saw that that you thought back to the hotel mm. but obviously when you saw them coming that day I just thought I was a lucky bugger he's got this beautiful blonde Shirley you know and, yeah and um, what were what were they doing when they came in how what was his body language like what were uh, he was just like holding they were holding hands when he came in the door took one look at me and Steve and then turned around and went out again still holding her hand you know and I thought oh they must have had domestics because she had puffy eyes so I didn't think nothing of it after that. And then you're inside and then outside you see the car leave. Yeah. yeah. And so describe that car. Well, it was a Subaru, but I wouldn't be sure of the colour because I, okay. I think I made a statement to the police that it was light brown or brown, that okay. colour. But... And then I read those um, articles last night and it said a white Subaru. Hmm. So they probably didn't think, you know, yeah. talking rubbish. Okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously it becomes quite quite crucial. So, I mean, but you're... I know it's hard to put a number on something, but, you know, if you were going to say at that time, like, what, how confident you were that it was David that came in? Well, I wouldn't be confident that it was him, but according to the uh, flyers that went around, it looked like him. Yeah. Like, it, it could have been any mouldy guy with a beard, you know, so maybe it was him, maybe it wasn't him, I don't know. OK. But I know it was her because she was really striking... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard, I know, like a huge amount of time has passed. Yeah. But... Yeah, I'm pretty certain it was her, yeah. He opened the door, the door's at the end of the hotel, he opens the door, comes in with her holding hands, took 
took a look at us. I don't know why he came in for, because he took a look at it was me and Steve were the only two in the hotel. And then he just turned around and went out again. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it, it, it's, it's strange. It's like you, you don't want anyone to see you, but then why yeah. would you be going in? Yeah, why well, would he come into the you know, hotel at, at all? Rodney is unsure about one thing. And that's a 100% confirmation that it was David Tamahedi that he saw. He says it was a Māori man that looked like him. But with the moustache and the beard, it's possible it could have been someone else that looked similar. However, Rodney is certain about one thing. That it was Heidi he saw with this man. His description of what she looked like does fit. And he describes a Subaru. Although he admits he may have got the colour wrong when he initially spoke to police. So if it was Heidi, then how do we explain what Rodney saw? It would seem to indicate that she may have been taken against her will by this man. And where is her barn? I'll add here that we are going to hear from another witness who will describe a very similar situation in the Fongmata area in an upcoming episode. But we can't forget that we're talking about significant periods of time. Memories fade or change. But what gives Rodney's credibility is that he's not coming forward now out of the blue. He did speak to others about his sighting at the time and eventually even made a statement to police. But what makes Rodney's sighting more interesting? He saw what he believes was the same Subaru station wagon. Again, a few days later, when he was working on his family's nearby property. Which is notable, given the fact that David Tamahedi's family are connected to the Matalda block, which is directly adjacent to the shack Rodney claims to have seen the Subaru the second time. I asked Rodney about this. Yeah, so I mean, so then yeah, you then so then within it's only a few days later you said you saw the same vehicle up at the yeah yeah. Is there any is there any way that David how would would David know about this place or yeah if it, if he took that car up there then he'd know because on the other side of the hill is the Matilda block and that's where their land is. The Matilda block is a block of land near Fongamata that is connected to the Tamahedi family. Rumours over the years have suggested that somehow Tamahedi may have taken Heidi here. Is it possible that there could be any substance to this? As I say thanks and goodbye to Rodney, he tells me that if I want to see the location he saw the Subaru parked, I can. Fifteen minutes later, we're pulling into a bush-lined driveway, 10 minutes out of Fongamata. I check in with the homeowner at the bottom of the drive, before slipping the chain off the gate, and we make our way up through the bush to the location. Despite being very close to a town, it feels remote. The forest completely obscures the sky, as we drive up a loose gravel road. 
a horse roaming free on the land meanders in front of our ute as we wind up the hill. After a few minutes, we round a corner and the bush gives way to a stunning vista of untouched coastline and ocean waves crashing against the shore. Below us, an Utapa or Māori cemetery can be seen. This is the spot Rodney says he was working when he saw the Subaru. We park the ute and I walk a short distance over to a clearing where broken remains of an old shed are scattered across the grass. Concrete foundations indicate this must be the place Rodney saw the car that day. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, if he... If he did see, potentially, Heidi and David, and if it was the same car and he saw it up here, well then, right now I'm standing in the spot of the old shed and the lean-to, and there's um, a bunch of wood and stuff piled here, and I'm surrounded by thick native bush, and the view here is actually spectacular. The ocean is probably 500 metres away or so and um, you were just surrounded by thick bush and it's certainly isolated here. If you brought someone here then you're probably going to be left pretty un unbothered if that makes sense. Or is it a different person? A different person in a different car? Hmm. Oh, actually, there's... There's actually an old foundation here of something. Some old foundations here of what actually looks to be an old building. Certainly interesting. And now it's time to move on. It's time to move on from this location. But as far as the case goes, I can assure you that the biggest revelations are yet to come. Like any case, possible witness sightings are fraught with risk, but more particularly after 34 years have passed. Can we trust what they are saying is accurate? Importantly, all the people we'll hear from in this case, at the very least, tried 
to tell police their stories. And in this regard, there is still a lot you're yet to hear. You'll more than likely have many questions that are yet unanswered. Remember that I only tell you what you need to hear, episode to episode. But in the final feature-length episode, all of your questions will be answered when I put all the pieces of the puzzle back together. But when it comes to witness sightings, there's one thing that love it or hate it has meant that sightings of the couple have stood out. Their looks. And in particular, Heidi's. She stood out. Simple as that. She looked so different to what people from these rural New Zealand towns were used to seeing. People noticed her and her barn. So for me, it gives me so much more confidence that those that say they saw her at that time probably did. And we'd be foolhardy to ignore them. But of course, every sighting must be approached with a grain of caution and can never be considered definitive. But if David Tamahedi could be convicted of the double murders on the vague sighting of a couple in Crosby's clearing, in which the woman was wearing a poncho completely covering her head and had features like lots of makeup that didn't resemble Heidi at all, then surely Barry, Murray and Rodney's sightings must carry a lot of weight. But how do their sightings all fit together? What if I told you these witnesses are just the entree? If this was a film, they'd be the opening credits. So what's the main act? What could possibly be yet to come? All questions that will be answered in what I promise is going to be an emotional, action-packed, edge of your seat ride over the final five episodes that will change the history of this case forever. We've been to Punakaiki where you can see some cliff rocks formed as pancakes on top of each other. It was beautiful and unbelievable nature. It's changing vastly from snow-covered mountains to dry grass hills and even to rainforests. We decided to go and visit a guy that Urban met on a fishing tour in Australia. He invited us to stay the night at his house. Simon, the guy that Urban met in Keynes, was going to work, so we got a key of our own and a house of our own. Urban made some pancakes and I listened to your tape. It's incredible that he trusted us and gave us a key and let us spend the time here all by ourselves. When they invite you to stay overnight and you say no, they can't understand that and seem to believe you are rude. To them it seems obvious that you should say okay and you should feel at home. Heidi Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. 
and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Anna Waddell as Heidi. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of other guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.